You're listening to Notes from Norwich. Well, welcome back to Notes from Norwich. Here we are again. We're recording this on Tuesday in Holy Week. Frankly, the strangest Holy Week of my life. Ever, I'm sure, in anybody's living memory. This is bizarre to have no no in-person services in this holiest week. But Jesus is still Lord, and we are back again to talk about Julian of Norwich and her revelations and to discover what she has for us, uh, especially in this time. We're back again. My name is Chris. I'm one of the three hosts on this show. Who are, who are you two? I'm J.N. Koshi. Uh, I live in St. Paul, Minnesota. I'm Marguerite, and I live in Apple Valley, Minnesota, which is a suburb of St. Paul. So I'm the token non-Minnesotan. I live in Wisconsin. You're practically Minnesotan. My grandparents were both from <laughs> Minneapolis. They both grew up on Xerxes Avenue on, on the western yeah, that side. Counts. Yeah. Okay, then. <laughs> but uh, welcome to uh, the Minnesota podcast. We, no, it's, today, um, we are, well, first of all, thank you, those of you who listened to episode one and left reviews and kind things to say on reddit um thank you very much oh did we get reddit comments we we got we got a reddit comment yeah wonderful (laughs) (laughs) somebody liked it i avoid reddit for at all costs so i'm glad that you were out there to pick it up (laughs) like all forms of social media there's some good and there's some bad just like the rest of the world Uh, Today, we're diving into chapter three of the revelations of divine love, which begins, when I was 30 years old and a half, God sent me a bodily sickness. I must say, I'm I'm endlessly amused at her noting the half. Like, it it just conjures a toddler who wants you to know (laughs) that they're two and a half, very specifically, uh, which I... I'm sure is not the spirit in which she she tells us this, but it does make me smile every time I read it. Well, it reminds me, I mean, I was just listening to a podcast today that, that uh, was talking about the, the beautiful intimacy of some of the little details scattered throughout the gospels. Like some people say, well, surely Jesus is just like a retelling of some of these other foundational myths of, you know, Osiris and I don't know other other gods who came back from from the dead but but the person i was listening to said but there are all these adorable little details in there that locate jesus and his story at a specific time and place like we have there in the creeds that it was it's under pontius pilate that he suffered Mm -hmm. nobody says what year was it when osiris died because that's you know everyone knows that's a myth but jesus is a, a historical figure that has mythical qualities just because how else do you make sense of how else um, do you talk about God and yeah. anyway? Yeah. That's a diversion. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so I, you know, the, the details really just do beautify the story. I think give you windows into personality. I think, I think mm-hmm. about, um, well, the Gospels, like not only are they like little like historical locators, but you get a sense in each Gospel of Jesus's personality a little bit. Um, that it's uh, 
not this uh, impassable um, blank slate that is the word incarnate, but that he has a sense of humor at points that really, um, these little, little bits, like you said, that uh, grounded in particularity. But back to Marguerite and Marguerite back to to Julian. (laughs) I was looking at Marguerite at the time uh, and her description of her sickness. Yeah. What do we, what are we noticing? Well, one thing that I notice is that she is um, facing death in her opinion, and she's regretting that she's facing death because she feels, as she says, that her life was nothing. And that's very typical to me to look back on your life and think that it was nothing. And, and that it shows her readiness to receive these revelations this this experience with the lord where where she sort of has emptied her past out i guess mm-hmm. that's what i notice i feel like we get a a really beautiful window into what she sees as her reason for being she thought it was a sadness to die not because of anything like in her life per se but that she would have liked to have lived to love god better and this is something that i uh she sees her entire being as a response to God's love. And I think we get a, we get a taste of that in this, these first paragraphs of chapter three that um, I think is really beautiful that she's counting her life as nothing and yet longing for the opportunity to receive and respond to love even more deeply. Do you ever find yourself just gazing at the cross or at a crucifix? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> As, especially when I'm at the monastery, um, sitting, sitting in the chapel, just gazing at that crucifix they have above the altar at Our Lady of Northwoods. Yeah. Just staring. Yeah. I have a crucifix on my wall right where I sit to say my uh, daily office. And so I am looking at it a lot it is it's such a central theme in our faith it's so important to us and it was important to julian and there are people for whom the cross is is a source of discomfort to put it mildly i guess or to put it kindly and i am not one of those people to me it is very comforting and julian talks about how the suffering was a comfort to her mm-hmm. in this in this chapter. I think it's in three, and I can I can relate to that very very well. Mm-hmm. How how is suffering comforting? Well, Jesus suffered out of love for us, and when we suffer, we we take part in it. We can suffer with him. And all of life is suffering, and I don't mean to be a Buddhist here, but that is, um, that is you know, Buddhist dictate number one, one of the, the first four of the four noble truths. And our life was created by God, and here we are, and we are suffering all the time, not every moment of the day, but there is suffering everywhere, somewhere, all the time. And that is from God. And 
therefore it comforts us. Uh, I'll get autobiographical for a minute. Um, I, so I, I wasn't always a Christian. I was raised in a very unchurched context and I tried a bunch of the different world's religions on uh, Judaism for a while and Buddhism for a while. And, and I sat with the Quakers and I looked at Islam. So I tried a bunch of them and eventually settled on Christianity for a variety of reasons. But one of the reasons was Christianity of all the religions that are out there balanced two things that, that I needed. I needed a religion that was unflinching about uh, admitting to the realities of life, which the cross does. Nobody should be able to say that Christians are in denial about how bad life can get. And that was very appealing to me. It was Ash Wednesday when I first kind of made my great conversion moment where I gave my heart to Jesus. I'd been kind of giving the rest of my life, you know, on my terms for a long time, but it was Ash Wednesday when the rest of me rushed in. And it was because somebody looked me in the eye at a very low moment of my life and said, you're dust. And I said, you know what? I certainly feel like it. Thank you <laughs> for being real with me. But then there are a lot of religions and philosophies that are unflinching about how bad life can get. But Christianity also provides the most hopeful hope as well. And so the, the cross, I, I have actually, it was when I first read this for the first time, and she talks about how the curate comes in. My curate was sent for me to be at my ending, and by the time he came, I had cast my eyes upward and could not speak. He placed the cross before my face and said, I have brought thee the image of thy maker and savior. Look thereupon and comfort thyself with it. And I thought, maybe I should try that just as a, as a prayer practice. And I just stared at the cross for a while. And then I just got into this for, for weeks afterwards. I would just like, every time I saw a cross, people would be like, Chris, hello. <laughs> Cause I would just be gazing at it for a while. Yeah. But it's always got to be twinned with the resurrection. Today's collect for Holy Tuesday. Um, Something it's it's about this taking this instrument of death and turning it into an instrument of life. Mm -hmm. Oh God, by the passion of your blessed Son, you made an instrument of shameful death to be for us the means of life. Grant us so to glory in the cross of Christ that we may gladly suffer shame and loss for the sake of your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. And, you know, that, that resonates with, like, Paul the Apostle, like, talks about it being, the cross being a stumbling block and foolishness. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's what I hear in your saying, like, it's, it's foolish to people, Marguerite, like you, like you mentioned. Um, and yet, it is the, this profound truth on which our faith hangs together, like you said, with uh, the resurrection. I think something, though, that Julian helped me with is helping me not have to jump immediately to the resurrection. Spending time with Julian has helped me be more cruciform in my faith in the sense that I am, she is challenging me to be more comfortable just gazing at the cross. 
and not needing to jump through Holy Saturday into the Easter Vigil, but saying, why don't you sit at Good Friday for a bit and contemplate it, which is a, a, is a worthy challenge. I know for me, I, my tendency is to acknowledge in perfunctory terms pain and suffering and then try to move on to the resurrection. But Julian, I think, her curate invites her into this, and then she invites us into it herself to find comfort in this Good Friday moment. Sometimes I, um, you know, every every Holy Week, this this Holy Week it hasn't happened so much because of all the all the strange reasons. But every time we get to Holy Week, people have these debates about how they're going to do the Holy Week liturgies differently. And one of the common suggestions is that Palm Sunday is too long with all that stuff. And anyway, it's, it's anachronistic. It's chronologically out of sync. What we should do is not have the Passion Gospel because that's for Good Friday. And on Palm Sunday, we should just focus on the triumphal entry. We should just focus on the all glory, laud, and honor aspect of it and just have it be triumphant and leave the passion for Good Friday. To which I always want to say, no, what we need is more of the passion. (laughs) Um, We have enough... um, Christianity in America is triumphant enough. What we need is to hear more about the cross and to be confronted with it more because we're not saved by Jesus riding into Jerusalem. We're saved by him being dragged out of Jerusalem and, and dying and then rising again. So this is actually where my thought about Ignatian spirituality becomes relevant what is Ignatian spirituality, first of all, for any? So, who's- yeah, the Jesuits founded um, by St. Ignatius of Loyola have a particular kind of spiritual charism that is characteristic of them. It is so Ignatian contemplation is a sort of imaginative prayer in which you take a scene from scripture and you sort of let it unfold in your heart through through a sanctified imagination um and there's a a great emphasis on sensory experience of these things i was listening to a podcast this morning about it and it's like the the idea is almost to ask god for memories of this event um that that it would be as though you had experienced it. Um, Which that alone made me think of our time last week, thinking about what Julian was asking for. Um, But I, I was struck in this chapter by her remarks about where her eyes were pointed um, and how when the curate got there, her eyes were set to heaven because she was convinced that that was where the mercy was going to come from. Like that, she, she, her eyes were fixed to heaven because that, I mean, it wasn't because it was easier. She remarks a few moments later, it was because she trusted that that would be where the mercy of God would come from. And then the curate invites her to fix her eyes on the face of the crucifix, 
which she realizes she could do more easily and with more uh, ease. And so she does it. And that's where these showings unfold. And so I was playing with this idea that she's kind of modeling two different sorts of contemplation. You know, the, the, the contemplation that with eyes set towards heaven is a, um, a contemplation beyond, maybe. You know, the, the, the sort of hesychastic, neoplatonist-like desire to move beyond. Mm-hmm. Whereas I'm wondering, and again, this might be entirely idiotic, if the, the, the uh, contemplation with eyes fixed on the cross is still a, a, a contemplation of the ineffable, but it's a contemplation into the particular mystery of Christ incarnate and crucified. That she, she gets challenged. This is not a contemplation that is sort of rejecting the physicality, the particularity. Um, but she's invited into this contemplation into the particular mystery of the bloody word on the cross. And I'm interested to hear your thoughts about whether you see a difference between these sorts of contemplations. Um, because the, the contemplation with eyes fixed on the cross seems to me very um, resonant with Ignatian spirituality, with this idea of letting yourself fall into these scenes, these experiences, these memories, and meeting the ineffable God there. Whereas I could see the, if I'm, if I'm parsing the eyes set upward to heaven, right, that would seem to be a more, um, more of a centering prayer, sort of a, a less, a more abstract, maybe, mode of contemplation. I agree, I agree Jan, to, to be thinking about heaven, for her eyes to have been cast up to heaven. And I can understand why she would think that that was a good idea. And it was a good idea. There was nothing wrong with it, of course. But that is imagining something that she doesn't know about, that nobody knows about, that is, is as you say, an abstraction. It's an imaginative um, trip into the unknown. Whereas facing the cross, she is facing Jesus who suffered and died for her, who loved her and is ready to receive her, she's, she feels. And so I, I can, it, I love the idea that it was the curate that told her to do that. I mean, here's your assistant priest, you know, the second in command, the guy that gets all the, all the, little jobs and he shows up there with a crucifix and he says, now look at this. I mean, what an inspiration for him. And this guy, well, I just, I just have so much respect for him. The, the crucifixion to pour yourself into it. If you have the courage to do it is, is just, it's a very big thing. And it's not something that the Ignatian exercises push on people as i'm sure you know because it can be it can be a little much but it it has all the all the possibilities i mean there are sounds there are sights there are odors there are tastes there there's the wind blowing in the air and the 
whatever kinds of um, grumbling there is at the foot of the cross and the thieves and I mean it's it's just it's incredibly rich and you can you can live there for a long long time and so I think it was a very good idea that the curate had that he was obviously sent and inspired by God to tell her this because this was the opening. This this opened everything up for her. It was from that gaze at the cross that everything opened up for her. And I think that that's I think that's true generally. So maybe not a harebrained idea that there are different types of contemplation at play here. Not at all. What popped into my mind was John 11, the story of the raising of Lazarus, where Martha says to Jesus, your brother will rise again. And Martha answers, yeah, I know he will at the, you know, the resurrection in the last day. Theoretically, based on what I've been taught, I know conceptually it's all going to be okay. And, you know, this this brings us back to the number one thing that everybody knows about Julian of Norwich. All shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. What people miss out and what happens to Martha in this account from Lazarus is that Jesus says, I'm the resurrection. Like, this isn't theoretical. Right. And people, mm-hmm. with when they quote that one famous quote from Julian, often they, they treat it like a platitude. Mm-hmm. When in fact, it's the summary of a whole theology of the consummation of suffering. Mm-hmm. And they miss out, you know, it doesn't make a good bumper sticker. So they gloss over all that stuff where Julian says it, it's going to be well after a whole bunch of stuff transpires that needs to happen. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think the connection to the curate is that Julian starts out gazing up at heaven where she supposes mercy will come from in theory. You know, she's heard, well, God's up in heaven. God gives us mercy. I'm having a bad day. I'm doing what theory tells me I'm supposed to do. And then the curate shows up, James's crucifix in her face, and it takes her into a whole different level of contemplation. And is one better than the other? Is one? That's, that's what I've been pondering. sometimes I wrestle with, with centering prayer. I practice it. And then I wonder if it's fruitful for me personally, um, because it seems to just jump right into the silence. Yeah. And I've been having more fruit lately, harvesting more fruit from, from Lectio from beginning with contemplation of something in the word and having a conversation with God about what's happening in this passage of scripture. And then eventually sometimes receiving this gift from God where I just rest in it. But I don't, I'm becoming less and less convinced that you can just force your way into silence. That, yeah. That silence is a, a gift that God gives you. You don't just barge in. <laughs> that resonate. And to get autobiographical myself, I spent a chunk of time as a Muslim and Islamic mysticism there's this concept of zikr the this remembrance of god's name and you repeat the names of god and it is this sort of centering prayer this sort of 
supposed to bring you directly into this transcendence that I have found less fruitful for me than contemplation of the crucifix, this like contemplation of something concrete. I am tempted to view that contemplation of the concrete as a sort of spiritual crutch that I'm using until I can grow into this abstract contemplation. But looking at Julian and what comes out of her fixing her eyes on the cross rather than directly up to heaven, I wonder if it's right to consider the abstract contemplation as the higher end. Maybe if, if all this, these, these 86 chapters that are densely packed with a profound experience of God's ineffable love, if that all came out of contemplation of the particular, is it necessarily true that I should be striving to get beyond that? You know, like, do I need to be saying to myself, well, may, maybe I sh- ideally I would go into this like wordless abstract contemplation, but because I'm not there yet, I'm finding it more fruitful to contemplate the particular. Do I need to be there or could I be in a place where, you know, this ineffable truth, this inaccessible light is made known to us in Christ on the cross? And that is where we will encounter him. Hmm. I find still prayer to be extremely difficult. I practice it as a practice because I know that it changes me and has changed me over the many years that I have been doing it. I'm not the same person that I was 20 years ago when I first started praying this way, but it's not because during the prayer sessions, anything particularly happens to me. During Lectio, things happen to me. During Ignatian prayer, things happen to me. But during still prayer, silent prayer, contemplative prayer, it's like I'm practicing openness, I'm practicing emptiness. It's like when you're building your muscles and you're doing the the thing with your whatever it is with the weight. It's not I know, I know. It's not because at that moment you're going to need to pick something up that's heavy. It's it's just you're building something over time which may or may not ever but anyway. Contemplation is something that ultimately lives with you in your life in all your moments of every day not sure that that's an easy place to get to but that's where it's going and the the sitting in silence and the constantly returning to silence and dismissing your thoughts in a gentle and loving way is just is a practice for that is this a higher level I'm, I'm just, I'm, I guess I'm kind of against levels. So I don't really think that um, praying one kind of way is a higher level of prayer than another kind of way. A little five-year-old who's rattling off the Lord's prayer is not praying any 
any less than I am when I am transfixed by the crucifix. I don't think anyway. I could be wrong, but. No, that seems wise. Speaking of transfixed by the crucifix, in this showing of the crucifixion, suddenly I saw the red blood trickling down from under the garland. This is how chapter four begins. Mm-hmm. And we're catapulted suddenly into the first showing. You know, this is, you mentioned um, the way people take all things shall be well um, and turn it into a platitude. When I, when I think in reaction to that, this is this first showing is what comes to mind that like taking that out of context misses this hot and fresh and most plenteous blood flowing out from under the garland. This is a, the all shall be well comes out of this experience. It's vivid and it's, you know, Marguerite, you said like the Jesuits don't necessarily recommend this kind of contemplation of the crucifixion. I think because it would, it's horrifying. It, there, is, there is great potential for this to be a horrifying experience that is nonetheless beautiful. She has this, this, this picture in her mind, this little movie clip playing in her mind of, of the bleeding, Jesus's head bleeding. And she immediately goes from there to the Trinity, which I think is a fascinating leap that feels surprising to me. And I think the reason it feels surprising is that maybe I do myself, but certainly the language that I tend to hear from people, there's, there's Jesus in his life story. And then there's the contemplation of the mystery of the Trinity. And these are like two different kinds of thinking or kinds of religious operation or something. Mm-hmm. It, it also feels surprising to me that you could go from an intense um, experience of a moment in the life of Jesus or a, sort of an eternal aspect of mm-hmm. Jesus the Christ in which he's always constantly suffering, but then immediately leap to this awareness that the, the Trinity is, is operating as a unity. Whenever Jesus appears, the blessed Trinity is understood. Yep. Yeah. This was shown to her by God. The, the, the bleeding of, from the crown of thorns was a showing and her immediate realization that the Trinity is present there in what she is seeing of Jesus is, is a revelation from God. It is what, God has shown her and if it doesn't if it doesn't track in a in a normal narrative way that's that's up to God I mean that's that's God's problem that is he that is God showed her that and that is what she sees and that is what she knows and she states it again and again and again throughout the throughout the RDL mm-hmm. and it's it's one of the reasons why people call Julian a theologian more than a mystic because she has an understanding of God that she got firsthand. And so I think it's inarguable that the Trinity is as she describes it. The Trinity is just there, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No questions asked. If Jesus is there, the Trinity's there. Wherever God is, their Trinity's there. 
no arguments. So this then troubles, and and we'll get into it later on, but it troubles this common line of thought, wondering about what happens to Jesus on the cross. And there's a whole school of salvation theory that says that Jesus's life is a sacrificial offering to appease the Father. Mm-hmm. That there's God the Father who's angry and outraged and wrathful and is planning to just destroy everything um, in a sort of like almost like a drunken fit, like, oh God, you know, God the Father's home and mm-hmm. he's been drinking again and he's going to smash the place up. What can we do to get him to calm down? And there's almost like this, this one uh, perspective from our soteriology, our study of, of, the theories of salvation that says that Jesus has to go and sacrifice his life in order to get the, the father to relent, which I personally don't, maybe you can tell from, <laughs> from what I've said. I don't, I don't really buy into that, but it's particularly troubled if Julian is correct and everything that's going on whenever you see Jesus is, is the Trinity going through that. Because then you would have God the Father also sacrificing to appease God the Father's wrath. Mm-hmm. And all the other, you know, the Holy Spirit as well and, and the Son as well. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it troubles that salvation theory. So I would imagine that Julian would say whatever's going on in the cross, it's not that. It's not pitting the persons of the Trinity against each other. Yeah. There is no wrath in God, she says later. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I don't know how to parse this truth that she's telling us with the mechanics of salvation. But I do think this unity of presence and action that wherever Jesus appears, the Blessed Trinity is understood to be there. That rings true. <laughs> might get myself in trouble for saying this, but I, I think any, any theory of salvation that we come up with needs to reckon with this idea of the entire Trinity being present where Jesus appears. Yes. Yes. Sidebar, and this is really petty of me, but um, as I, as <laughs> Marguerite, don't roll your eyes like that. <laughs> Um, as I was reading this section, the Trinity is our maker, the Trinity is our keeper, the Trinity is our everlasting lover, and so on. I just wrote in the margin, take that creator, redeemer, sustainer, folks. Absolutely. Um. No. <laughs> yeah. Let's have an end to that. That it is the Trinity that is each of these roles. Right. So we can't name the persons of the Trinity after them. Right. Right. Anyway, end petty. <laughs> follow Jan on Twitter for more petty takes um, <laughs> so not only is the revelation of the Trinity part of this showing but Mary shows up our blessed lady Saint Mary as Julian calls her I saw her spiritually and bodily likeness, a simple maid and humble. 
I have no idea what seeing spiritually and bodily likeness means. Julian has a couple different ways of describing how she sees things. Mm. And they seem to be in different layers of sensual perception. Mm. Like maybe she sees it in her mind's eye, as we would say, or she sees it in her heart's wisdom, or you know, as she as she expresses it here. I think she's trying to be as honest as possible with the reader about exactly how she sees things so that people don't think that she is going into some sort of crazy fit and seeing things. Mm. And anyway, so I think that that is, that's what's behind her different ways of describing how she sees things. And I think we should uh-huh. just, I mean, Take we, we could theoretically parse it all out and layer it up and make a diagram and, or even a Venn diagram and and talk about how she, how all her layers of perception. But I think we just need to realize that she is trying to be as honest with us as possible as, as how she's seeing things. That makes sense. So I think one of the, uh, I, I myself have a, a very, uh, deep Marian devotion. So when Mary shows up in things, I tend to pay attention. Amen. <laughs> Drives my Protestant friends crazy, but <laughs> I just send um, I just send the bits to my Eastern Orthodox friends. They get it. <laughs> <laughs> so also God showed in part the wisdom and the truth of Mary's soul. Wherein so there are two aspects of of the the mood of this part of the showing. Wherein one, I understood the reverent contemplation with which she beheld her God and her Maker. So she sees things from Mary's perspective. Mm-hmm. She enters. Mary's soul and for a moment it's like she's sitting there at at the moment that Gabriel shows up saying what must it be like to be overwhelmed with awe at the presence of this angel of of God and then marveling with great reverence that he wished to be born of her who is a simple creature of his own creation so she also marvels from God's perspective at the joyful humility of saying, let's give this incarnation thing a try. It's almost like this excitement in in my understanding of it. And so, and then she goes on to, to, to cite uh, a, a part of Mary's interaction with Gabriel, behold me here, God's handmaiden, let it be with me according to your will, right? In, in Luke's gospel. Mm-hmm. And so to me, this is an opportunity for Mary to be a guide for Julian in how to proceed with the rest of these visions, because Mary's been there first in this stance of, of awe-filled contemplation of God. That may be overthinking things. I, I don't know. No, I think that tracks something that, as you were talking, stuck out to me with the be it unto me according to your will is in chapter three, the bit where she said, I as- and I assented fully with all the will of my heart to be at God's will. So a chapter before, she's talking about this giving herself up. And then we see the Blessed Virgin coming as a sort of model and guide, like you said, of taking this humility into the mystery of the incarnation. I, I agree. I think that here's Julian flat on her back and completely 
enthrall of what she is seeing from the Lord. And then here's Mary, just a child, barely more than a child, small and sweet and innocent and with nothing on her mind at all. And she is receiving, I mean, they seem parallel to me. It seems that just as Julian is receiving this revelation that she will share with the world, so Mary was receiving the incarnation, which she will bear and then share with the world. I mean, it doesn't seem like, it seems too much of a coincidence that Julian would have this big opening toward uh, a revelation from God. And then just by coincidence, Mary, you know, pops along in her mind and she sees Mary. (laughs) You know, I mean, I think that that was, I think that was given to her as a vision for a reason. And that, and that the reason was here's somebody, here's little Mary, who's, who's nothing, just, just a tiny little girl who is going to be, have this big job. So this is how you do it. You know, as you said, that she is, that she is a guide for Julian as to how to receive um, this blessing and then bring it forth from herself. Yes. Yes. I knew well that it was strength enough for me against all the fiends of hell and spiritual temptation. Do we live in a world where we think about the fiends of hell? I think that that's probably pretty much um, disregarded by most people, but I, I know too many people who don't disregard it, who, who feel that it is absolutely essential to tramp down Satan under our feet and that this is a daily kind of a thing that we, that we need to engage in. I don't think it's wrong to bring that back into focus, I guess, in our modern world. I don't know. What do you think? Jan? I I came from a background as a child where this was perhaps overplayed. Mm. The, the ongoing threat of Satan. But as I look at my current religious context, Anglicanism in the United States, it, I think we would do well to consider this more. I know the, the language of demons as I've sort of inherited it from the desert mothers and fathers has been pivotal in me understanding how sin operates in my life. And I think, I think we do well to recover more of this. I know that there's some, um plenty of evil stuff in the world and it affects me and people that I love and even people that I don't love, but, um, but I, I don't, I, I have to work harder to care about that if I'm honest. Um, but, um, and I know temptation, I know trying very hard to not do something and yet I wind up doing it anyway. And, uh, that all has to come from somewhere. And if our tradition has 
given that a label of the demonic um, and it finding its source in hell, I'm fine with that. I mean, it's useful to have mm-hmm. that language. Um, I personally don't spend too much time wondering about whether or not it's a, there are physical manifestations of whatever uh, Jesus says that there are demons. That's good enough for me. I don't really. Mm -hmm. um, And I also trust that Jesus has given us the power over them. So I don't worry about, about it. I think knowing it is strength enough for us against Mm -hmm. all the fiends of hell is the lead we should take. But yeah, this is this is a thing. If Jesus says there are demons, that's good enough for me. And like you said, there he has given us the power over them. And that is what Julian's commenting on here. Is that this is strength enough. Hmm. Well, are we done with episode two? Do we have other things that we want to say? This is my very graceful segue into into the ending. This is professional podcasting uh, production. <laughs> Any last thoughts on chapters three or four? Only that may we all have the grace to follow Our Lady and Julian in this humility and openness. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode. To find out more about Dame Julian, the revelations of divine love, the Order of Julian of Norwich, or us, check the show notes to this episode. You can reach me, Chris Arnold, the producer of this series, at Apple Tree Pods on Twitter, or on Facebook, you can find the page Apple Tree Podcasts. That's all for now. We'll talk to you soon. May God bless you.